after a while, the guy, the engineer, got up to go and have a piss, and John got up and locked the door, locked him out, <laughs> and said, right, let's make some fucking music then. Let's, let's get on with it. Yeah, and that's, that's it. That was my lucky break. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Let me pronounce your name correctly. Laune. 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 Yeah, we were, we were wondering. It's a French name. Right. And I, I, I was about to say, okay, Nick Laune. 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 Yeah. yeah. Welcome. You're, you are um, record producer extraordinaire, so that people know who you are, what you do. And you're somewhere very exotic. I am. I'm in Sydney, Australia, and it is eight. AM, so I'm barely awake. Right. It's yeah. Wednesday, the 29th, so I'm yeah. kind of a day ahead of you. Wow. Yeah, we missed everything. My my brother lives down in Australia, so I, I know this. Uh, he lives in Tasmania, so it's even weirder, right? So. All I know of Tasmania is the Tasmanian devil and Blundstones. They both exist. Yeah. Yes, my Blundstones came from Tasmania. I was very, very pleased. Yeah. yeah. And they fell apart, you know. I went. I went to Tasmania once on on tour. On tour, I had a few days off, and we were going to play in in Melbourne. You know, so I said to my brother, called my brother up. I hadn't seen him for years, and I'd never been to Tasmania. And I called him up and said, "Oh, I'm going to come and see you. I'll I'll be. This is my flight number. I'll fly over and see. You. I've got a few days off." And he went, "Great." I said, "Do you need to know the flight number?" He says, "No, I don't need to know anything." And I'm like, "Oh, really?" You know, and and I landed, and we. I took this big plane from. Melbourne and I landed yeah. and when I when I got there I looked out the plane and I could see him on the tarmac like waving at me yeah, because the, the the airport's about the size of my house yeah right? I mean it's, it's a you know Hobart is that's a big town really Hobart and it's great there I mean I, I, yeah. I didn't really know much about it until the the museum was built but I met David Walsh um who owns it and he's you know he owns Hobart it's an amazing story he he basically is a bit um, like Rain Man, let's <laughs> okay. say. Not, not he, actually, he's, you know, he, he's t- you can totally have a conversation with him. and everything. He's a normal-ish person, but incredible mind. And he can basically look at any situation and understand the probability. So in other words, yeah. wow. when he went to, to Vegas and started betting on things, he kept winning. So he made an absolute fortune. I mean, millions and millions and millions. And then went around the world buying incredible art not only art but incredible things like he owns quite a few mummies real real mummies and you know sort of a lot of religious artifacts and he commissioned uh, uh he got damien hurst to make a mickey mouse out of diamonds wow and it's all there it's all there in tasmania in this incredible really? uh, yeah i'm not kidding and not only that it where where he's got this museum is so beautiful it's like a lake uh ab- above hobart like you know there's the mountains behind hobart it's really beautiful there and there's a lake and then there's a peninsula that comes out into the lake and he owns that so rather than ruin 
this sort of beautiful landscape. He built it underground, and it's honestly like a James Bond movie type. Thing. This is Thunderbird stuff. This is Jerry Anderson. Yeah, it's really very, very Thunderbirds. It's it's like three to four layers underground, and it's got a a, a, a cylindrical elevator made of glass. Well, of course. What else could it be but cylindrical and made of glass underwater? We had one of those in Berlin in an atrium of a hotel, but it exploded a few days ago. Uh-oh. It was thousands and thousands of gallons of water in a cylindrical pipe, you know, on, on end, in the atrium of, like, you know, some international hotel. Wow. Full of, full of fish. And, yes, full of fish. It was a, a tourist destination. You would stay at the hotel and you'd go and have lunch there and... Um, and uh, with the co- we had this minus fourteen degree uh, snap the other about right. last week, and the next day the papers well the, I was going to say the next day the papers were full of it. The streets round about were full of fish. Really? Um, yeah, poor fish didn't make it. Um, nobody got injured because it happened around about four or five in the morning, and uh, they just had a crack and a sort of shudder. Wow, sounds a bit dodgy putting. Uh, glass elevators on, on in high pressure situations. I think so, especially in a hotel. Yeah. So, I mean, was the elevator inside the fish tank? Um, I imagine. I think yes. The, yes. No. You're right. There was an elevator inside the fish tank because you were apparently able. I didn't venture in myself, but you're able to get in there. You know, and blow blow kisses at the little um, angel fish as they went by. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever tickles your fancy. Um, I, I was feeling rough, but now you told me about the submerged island that came from a, a you know fortuitous gambling in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's an incredible. He's an incredible person, and it, it's. I mean, it's nice to see that someone so wealthy, so incredibly wealthy, has spent it on building not only an incredible uh, art museum, uh, but it's also just full of the most extraordinary things. I mean, it's wow. got like that um, uh, Kevorkian. Uh, box where you, you know, you to kill yourself. You plug yourself oh, yeah. in, right. kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's got one of those, and you you go into this room on your own, and you put these straps on, right? Oh, no. And there's there's liquid that comes up the pipes. So you you actually it's incredibly intense because you you know you haven't actually injected the thing into your veins, but the wow. feeling of it, and it, and it's. Kevorkian's voice saying, you know, you're now going to basically go to sleep. Wow. Wow. No, I just switched my, I, I switch my under blanket on because it's quite cold here and it's it quite nice. And sometimes I feel like I'm frying. I, I had that, um, that feeling, that Kevorkian feeling, a couple of days ago, because I, I, you know, being a man of a certain age, you know, they they ask you to take a colonoscopy now and again. Oh yeah. So I had the second one I'd had in ten years, you know, and it was actually, it was the best experience I've ever had in a hospital. I mean, they did the endoscopy as well, one down your throat, one up the other, you know. Till they meet, they meet somewhere in the middle, don't they? Yeah, it was like I was surrounded by like eight like vestal virgins or something and they brought me into this oh, room and then they just said 
you're going to sleep now. And then it was gone and I woke no, up. No, they get, it's the, pent, it's the pentanol, lol. It's with the drugs they give you before. It was, it was the drugs talking. I know it was the drugs talking, yeah. But it was the best experience I've had. And uh, I hope that doc, Dr. Abisi doesn't hear this because she might think I was very weird. But um, no, it was really a good experience. Yeah. I think it's a marvellous uh, uh, advertisement for her, her talents and skills. <laughs> yeah. The last one was a bit like Nurse Ratchet, and it was terrible, but um, this one was great. My um, uh, surgeon in that department was called Ringo. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I said, oh, you're not a drummer, are you? No, no. <laughs> it's like... I went to Jamaica this year, earlier this year. Um, uh, but Zach, Zach Starkey is a good friend. Yeah. Went there, staying with him and his wife, Shush, and, and their baby, um, and went on a kind of a boat into this lagoon and it ended up pouring down with rain, just like monsoon. And it was just, just me and, and a friend. And so we're paddling like, <laughs> and we ended up in the jungle and there was these little shops, guys selling whatever they could sell. I mean, just absolutely, right. you know, flip flops, spray painted with um, Jamaican flag kind of thing. And we went to one shop and it says Ringo Starr's uh, gift shop. Yes. Painted in, you know, very, you know, hand, hand painted. Right. And this guy comes out and he goes, Hey man, I'm Ringo, Ringo Starr. What can I help you with? You know, and we're just like, this is so weird because, you know, just up the road in this villa. And it was Ringo, Ringo Starr's uh, so, of course, I went and got Zach and I said, yeah, you have to meet your other dad. About two years ago, I bought the Beatles White Album again, you know, because it was remastered right. again and right. it's all been... Re um, and I finally got my deck connected. I still haven't played it. I'm still looking at the book, the packaging. I'm reading about it. And then there was a little thing on YouTube with a lady who played the harp on She's Leaving Home. Right. right. Ringo... Uh, the White Album, Abbey Road Studio 2, and the ridiculous circumstances it took to get Susie and the Banshees into Abbey Road Studio 2 to start doing some recording one day. It was all to do with spilling champagne down the mixing desk of a studio around yeah. the corner in Camden Town. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I, I mentioned it all because, Nick... Where, where would you where would you start? I mean, I know where you started, and I, I, I said we we may have some friends in common. I thought we may have some um, locations in common as well for different reasons. Yeah, we we've been in the same studio complex many times, and um, I, I, you know we've definitely done this. <laughs> Ships passing, yes, a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, start, I started at the townhouse. That was really the townhouse. Okay. Which is where our, mine and Lol's good friend Mike Hedges, I think, was all, not townhouse. He was at Battery or yeah, somewhere Battery. Or Morgan. Yeah. But we were in townhouse, definitely, because um, everybody went to townhouse looking for that Phil Collins wall, the drum wall, you know, the reflective stones. That's it. And I did read somewhere earlier on that you were there during the recording of or something I, I when phil yeah I, so I, I was an assistant engineer to hugh pageant who was one of the engineers at townhouse and he was uh producing 
that album, that Phil Collins solo album, and that song, In the Air Tonight. Um, quite a lot of that album started off as Phil's demos. Yeah. And that song in particular, the drum machine, you know, and the main chords were his demo. And, and basically that was transferred onto multi-track and then his vocal and the, the vocoder and all that stuff. It's a very minimal song when you listen to it, right? Yeah. And so we know that there'd been a couple of songs recorded with, with the, the drum sound because Phil wanted that drum sound because he had played on Peter Gabriel's third album. Yes, that, that makes sense. With that great song, Intruder. Yes. I mean, I, I, just, I personally, I mean, not the massive, I'm not a Genesis fan, and Peter Gabriel's stuff, some of it I like, some of it, but that album, that third album that has, you know, Kate Bush on it, and, um, you know, Games Without Frontiers, and, and that song Intruder, it's just incredible sounding, and the drum sound, that's where that drum sound first came up. Steve Lillywhite produced it, and Hugh Padgham engineered it. And Phil loved that drum sound, so that's why he employed Hugh. We could do we could do a whole we could do a whole episode around what we're talking about right now. I love. Well, that drum sound is such an important thing. I mean, I, I, I you know most of the records I made because uh, I learned how to get that drum sound, right. like the the Flowers of Romance, which was yeah. the first record I made, has that drum sound, you know, and it's, it's in that same room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it. I remember sitting there playing the bass drum, going like, "Why doesn't my bass drum sound like that bass drum? And how am I going to get there?" You know? The thing that was funny about in in the air tonight was that you've got that sound, and Phil went out. And he was just hovering over the drums with his sticks. And I, I was at the back of the room as a, a, a tape op, you know, and he was up there. And he, he, we played it, for, played it from the song, from the beginning of the song, in record. And the whole song, he was just, I thought, is he playing? <laughs> Hugh just cranked everything up. And then, you know, suddenly... After verse three, he went, blah, 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 blah. and I, I literally fell off my chair because it was so loud. Because, you know, I think he thought he was going to do some brushes or something quiet. <laughs> so he's preparing for the de the delicate entry. Yeah, it was a complete uh, overloaded the desk. Uh, the what, what year? What year is this, uh, Nick? What year are we talking here? Nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. So. I'm thinking in terms of where I was. At 79, I'd just joined the Banshees. Yeah. I'd just done the Slits' first album. And that came out. And was like going, it can't be Phil Collins. I just can't know, be, you know. Because it's it going like, that's just the freaking best drum sound you've ever heard and the most unusual. And the whole thing was. And I, 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 I did several things, but I, I it was... Uh, I mean, Peter Gabriel's albums were, were a kind of a, on, on rotation with the psychedelic furs or something at the time. Right. You know, I, I always thought it was um, Jerry, Mar Jerry Marotta, 
I, I was right. I thought he was playing on on that album. I know Gabriel sort of did what Susie did to me. You know, took away the hi hat, yep. took yeah. away the cymbals, no hairspray, no hairspray, no splashing. Just get the <laughs> drums down, which then became a way of recording drums to kind of so we could edit and cut cleanly. Yeah, that room was so. I mean, it was all stone. The floor was slate. There was like very little wood and very little of anything else other than rock. So you had you had you had some great bands come through. I mean, XTC would have come through Virgin as well at that point. Yeah, the um, that was actually uh, I assisted on um, the Black Sea album. Yeah, that was done just before the the Phil Collins one. I think, or maybe just after it. it An was... underestimated drummer, Terry Terry Chambers. There, yeah. Great drummer. Oh, I love Perry. Yeah, apparently he's here. In he's a race. Probably around the corner. He's probably surfing right now with his son, who he says is a much. He says is a much better drummer than he ever was, which I can't believe. Because I, I always today I was thinking, if I do another drum sort of talk, I will remember to mention because I always forget to say who's your favorite drummer, who was your big influence. I always go Ringo, right? And it, it was probably more. Mick Fleetwood, wow. but Phil Collins for sure when he was playing on Another Green yeah. World with, um, now what was his name, Percy. Oh, Percy Jones? Yeah. Yeah. And I think Eno, Brian Eno, had picked up a lot of little snippets from Phil Collins over the years. And he's, I remember one where he said, yeah, thanks, Brian. Wheeling is in the studio that you recorded everything and just paid his one session fee wow. or something like this. Made a whole album out of Percy and Phil kind of really doing some amazing things. Little snippets of drums and... Phil Collins is hilarious. He's just a really funny, funny person. I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's his public image, you know, which, you know, uh, obviously when that, when that uh, in the air tonight, nobody really knew, apart from, I guess, Genesis fans, but... They didn't know him, and then he became that that person, and that sort of squeaky clean right. character. But you know, he wasn't really squeaky clean at all. He really wasn't, and uh, or or isn't, and um, very very funny. He constantly would be redoing sort of um, Steve Martin. He loves Steve Martin, and oh, yeah. a lot of stand-up comedians. And he was very good at imitating voices. Yeah, it's just constantly a laugh with him. I mean, it's sort of I. You know, I, I know I know the public image that he has, and it's he he kind of isn't that. He's yeah yeah. You're you're right about him being being very good at imitating voices because when Gabriel left Genesis, you didn't really even know that he'd left Genesis. Right, Phil took over. Yeah, yeah. He was already he was already doing all a lot of the backing vocals for sure. old Phil anyway. Sure. Yeah. Like, it sounds like I knew I was there. Who was there? <laughs> I was there when he did the lamb. They call it lamb, don't they? The lamb, yeah. Lamb. I saw I saw Genesis with Gabriel when I was like thirteen at the the uh, Kennington Oval for a pound, one pound. Okay, Liverpool Liverpool Empire. I think I saw uh, selling England by the pound. Right. Well. Wow. wow. Yeah. There you go. See, I didn't. I didn't get to. I grew up in Spain, in the south of Spain. Yeah. Halfway up a mountain, and uh, I went back to england in 1977 perfect okay so and and i was still you know um 
I, I, all my education was in Spanish. But I, so I just went out. You know, when you live in Spain, Spanish people outdoors all the time. So that I, regardless of the weather, I just went out to gigs. So the whole you know punk rock thing happened. So you went from you went from Andalusia, yes, to uh, to London, Camden Town, to no, uh, more like Fulham, 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 Fulham Broadway, yeah, yeah. So, so you went to the Greyhound all the time. Well, I went, I went everywhere. I went everywhere. I had a skateboard, uh, and I, I just, um, I, I just honestly, I saw, I think I saw every single punk band you could mention, except for the Sex Pistols. I went to quite a few gigs. So you'd have gone down the, the like the music machine and yes, all that, yeah, and and I just you know just lapped it up because to me it was extremely exciting having having grown like I literally grew up in a tiny village up up a mountain near, near in the south uh, south coast called Frigiliana. With the smell of smell of oranges wafting down from Sevilla. Yes, yes, and olives and all that, and those big 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 purple flying bees. God knows what they are. I don't know what they were. Yeah. Loud. We 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 did an album down there. Me and Susie did the Creatures album, the second one, and we went we went wow, to right. Perez de la Frontera. Yes. Okay. We were we were we were between uh, I think Cadiz or Jerez and Arcos. Okay. De la Frontera. I've heard of that place. I, did, I never went to that studio. It, it wasn't a studio. It was um, it was a ranch, a bull oh. ranch, uh, um, by an ex bullfighter called Fermin Borges. And we <laughs> went there with Mike Hedges. We took the Abbey Road sixteen track mobile. Wow! And when we got down there, my drums were so loud. It was in a bodega, you know, like right. stone walls, vaulted ceilings, and I think was there was no separation in the room. So Mike Hedges was just watching the needles. It was he couldn't couldn't actually listen to what was going right. on the tape. It was just watch monitoring. And I just oh thought God. this is crazy. We all thought it was crazy, you know. The power got sucked out when they were doing manufacturing and things. So what I want to know is is who drove the mobile down? Did Hedges drive it down? I can imagine him driving it down. <laughs> no, no. It was a, a very um, trusted person from Abbey Road Studios, I think. Oh, okay. But I, I it was just the idea of adventure and also that there's one of those moments in time where your starting point was somewhere that I was very close to and, and remember with great affection and fondness and like it's another, wo- another world. It, it's great down there. I mean, I, I still go there once a year, but my, my brother and sister still live down there. And it, it's just a wonderful oh, okay. part of the world, but it has nothing to do with punk rock. Right. So, you know, you can imagine like arriving in London yeah. as an amped up teenager Right and absolutely no limits because my mum, who who was very, she was very kind of rock and roll bohemian person. I mean, she's always listening to the Rolling Stones and had a lot of uh, vinyl. And I I really think the there's something must be something to do with you that because if if it, if you're anything like me and and I don't say say we're we're similar but I know I'm not like. I, I, I'm pretty good at what I do. I learned on the job, um, but I know there's thousands of great, really amazing drummers, and Phil Collins is like one that I just like put on a pedestal. So it must have been something else. There must have been something else that like got me into situations. Did you find that? What 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 was going on that 
you found your way in. Yeah, I mean, the first, the, I mean, I, I, I was playing around with tape machines uh, when I was 12 right. in, in Spain. Because my dad used to, is, was a writer, he wrote books, and he would fly back to London and, and was on the BBC. And so he had uh, him reading his stories, and it was broadcast probably on Radio 2 or 4 or something like that. Right. And so he had a, a tape machines like Grundig's and stuff. So he gave me one of those, and I started editing and doing crazy stuff with tape, um, making tape loops and stuff uh, with sticky tape. And I just loved electronic equipment. So then we moved back to London. Um, I, I kind of just wanted to be in a recording studio and I ended up at Take One Studios. I don't know if you remember Take One. I remember Take One. Yeah, that was always a reproduction place. It was more of a mastering room. Yeah. 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 And so th- I, my job really was to copy masters to send to different countries. So I had to learn how to line up tape machines and I knew all about azimuths and boring things like that. And a song came in an unknown by an unknown artist to be copied, you know, for release around the world. Um, and I loved this song. I thought it was a great song. It was like Iggy Pop on a disco song. Yeah. And, and it was really cool. And, the, and, it, and the, the lyrics were kind of catchy. And so I thought it was great. And there was an instrumental version. So I edited for my own fun between the two versions, right? And then I'd use some tape loops and put some out-of-phase things and made this bizarre version of it. The mastering engineer, which is Dennis Blackham, who's also known as Bilbo Bopper, who probably mastered a lot of uh, your records. Right. Because uh, he was one of the top guys back then in the, in that late 70s, 80s. Right. He, he came in, it was probably 1 a.m., and I was still in this little room chopping away you know and he's like what what are you up to and, and i said well I've, this song came in and i really like it and i've just done my own version of it and he said oh let's hear it so i played it to him yeah and it, it was pop music do you know that song pop 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 music radio you know, radio, radio video yeah that's it yeah boogie with a suitcase that song so and dennis just said oh this is great you know the singer is coming in tomorrow so um, do, do me a copy and I'll play it to him. I said, you can't do that. I've, I've, I've hacked his song up. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 it's great. It's great. And I thought, okay, you know, I was what, 18, I suppose. So anyway, I, I ra- ran off another copy. Next day, I'm, I'm working, knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> and Dennis comes in, comes in with uh, Robin Scott, yes. who's the singer. Right. Now, Robin Scott actually used to manage the slits. So you you must know Robin Scott. No, he did. Came on the, on the back of many people who were trying to manage the slits. <laughs> manage their slits, right. With Dick O'Dell and Frank Silver and Clive Langer. Maybe he managed them for a week. <laughs> yes. Basically, he liked it, Robin Scott. Him, him and Malcolm McLaren were friends. Right. He said this this new thing that they're doing in in New York that the DJs are mastering twelve inch versions of one song to make the low end louder. Yeah, yeah, and and the song louder and the low end bigger. Yeah, the twelve inch mix was being born. Yeah, well, and he said I want to put out the first commercial twelve inch single on pink vinyl, 
and I need a longer version. And here it is. It's, it's, it was five and a half minutes long. And so that basically, the song was released, the single version. And as you know, it was a massive hit. It went to number one, I think, right. in England. So it certainly went to number one in most countries. And then the 12-inch version came out shortly after and kept it up there in the charts. Yeah. So, um, so that was the first thing I ever had with my name on it. Wow. Because it's, it's called the Nix Mix. How cool. And, um, yeah. That's very cool. See, see, the thing is, it's it's cool now, but back then I was going like, I hate this, because <laughs> <laughs> it was it was all too it was all good and very professional, very professional. It's what was going on though, right? It was what was going on at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was. It, it was the fight between punk and, and disco was going on, wasn't it? And this song, uh, this song was like, it was kind of a bit of both. And I don't know. I, I mean, but what happened was the fact that I did that got me the job at the townhouse as right. an assistant engineer. Right. That That's what got, I, I went for an interview yeah. and Mick Glossop, who was the chief engineer, you know, that was your calling card. I didn't go in there with that, but he said, what's your experience? And I said, I know how to line up tape machines. I know all about that. And I know this. And I did this thing. And, it, and then he, I gave him a copy and there's my name. So he thought, okay, this, this kid's obviously ambitious. And you landed basically in the, the Glossop Padram yeah. world of yeah. experience and yeah. 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 And then, um, you know, and the next lucky break that happened was, was that I was put, put on a session with, uh, public image with, right. with John yes. and nobody else wanted to do it. Like none of the other assistants wanted to do it. Why, why is that? I wonder. I don't know. <laughs> I can't imagine. Verbal abuse apparently was the, he's always been lovely to me. I, I can't, yes. I can't imagine that for a, for a moment. I know he's a lovely guy, but I can see that some people might be a bit scared, you know? I, he's, yeah. I mean, he's still, yeah, he's still one of my, my best friends. I mean, I see him, I see him every year, which is more, right. more than I see a lot of people from back then. Yeah. You know, I've, I've kept in touch and he lives in LA. Uh, I, I, you know, what happened was I, I was put on that session as an assistant and the engineer that he brought in to do this kind of mix of uh, an outtake from Metal Box. Okay. Um, and the engineer basically was, either he was really high, uh, he, he was kind of, he was, he, he, he was a, a reggae remixer guy, but he wasn't, he, he <laughs> was English. He had dreadlocks, but he was English and he, and he just, didn't really have it together he didn't understand how the desk worked um and i don't know who it was I, I still to this day don't know who that was but basically i ended up um you know from my chair at the back of the studio right but every time i'd go up to the desk to explain that you pull the knob up to switch right. it on and then you turn it he was you know i'd go back and then it would happen again and he says this one doesn't work and I go, yeah, you, put, you, you just pull it up and you do this. And then after a while, John said, Oi, yeah, what's your name? Yeah. And I said, oh, it's, uh, 
That's Nick. And he said, well, Nick, get your fucking chair, put it up near the desk, because you're going backwards and forwards like a fucking yo-yo. And so I brought my chair up. And then I kept reaching over and doing it every time he didn't. And after a while, the guy, the engineer, got up to go and have a piss. And John got up and locked the door, locked him out, <laughs> and said, right, let's make some fucking music then. Let's, let's get on with it. Yeah, and that's, that's it. That was my lucky break. I mean, I, that, that to me just said that, that says you say lucky break. You could say serendipitous moment, but, but uh, really, it's you. It's you and your that the age you're at. You know, yeah, yeah. I, you know, yes. it's it's youthful like, ent- enthusiasm. I, 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 yeah, why shouldn't it be me? I can do this. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy doesn't know what he's doing. But you don't go kind of in there and go. Oh, I'm not sure if I should. And I'm sure you must have achieved. There must be many moments where that, if you like, attitude is what kind of turned something around. Well, that, that attitude definitely turned it around for, for me because, you know, when I first saw, like, The Clash play, I was like, okay, I can do this now. I, I, I know what they're doing. I can do it. I can do that, yeah. You know, whereas I'd been watching, you know, ELP and Genesis before. I'm like, no, can't do that. What? How, how the hell do you do that? I can't do that. But, uh, you know, I saw The Clash and I thought, yeah, I can do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it, and when you're young like like that, you do think you can do everything. Sure, don't you? You, do, yeah. you know, you know nothing, so you can do it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then you 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 worked with uh, you you, you went on to Killing Joke and probably others, and yep. at some point you must have met up with um, Dennis Bavel, Mr. Blackbeard, for the Slits second album. Yes, well, what happened with the Slits was. That, that connection was, in a way, through John, I guess, because John was already with Nora. Yeah. Well, I, don't, I don't know, I, actually, because I haven't really... It, it was just this thing where, because that Flowers of Romance record was so bizarre-sounding right. and interesting, to, especially to musicians, yeah. I, I got a lot of calls. I mean, I had no manager... I was always a little jealous in a way. I, I, I'd moved out of the Slits camp um, and it, was, it wasn't it was hard to leave. It was hard to leave, but it wasn't like I was leaving to do something else, which was strange. I, I, I kept falling into the next situation. And so the call for Susan the Banshees was unexpected, it, even right to the moment when the manager called me. I didn't know who he was. But... Um, it was like then the slits went on to really try and forge a, a whole new sound for themselves. And right, were you in the slits the the, the first version of the slits? The second, second version. version. So I knew Palm Olive, I knew Paloma, the original drummer. Right, and um, I met the band while they were playing as slits. My first band in Liverpool, my little punk band, uh, we would open for the slits. We'd come to London, we'd stay at Nora's house. Right. Uh, we got to meet Viv and Tessa. And uh, I remember riding in the car around the King's Road with Ari and Viv, and we picked John up. And John was going, they're after me, Viv, they're after me. <laughs> she said, oh, John, everybody's after you. Yeah, they probably were back then, like the teddy boys and stuff. Oh, he's a funny guy. Yeah, yeah. 
No, so I did that first album. I knew the songs. We reworked them with Dennis at Ridge Farm. Did a lot of rehearsing. We went through many producers.、Um, many engineers and producers had a go at working with them, and it was Dennis that kind of pulled it off, really. Right.、Uh, basically, the st- I only did two songs. I did Earthbeat. Yeah. And there was a, oh, God, what's the other song? It was the B side, but it was actually really good. And both of them ended up on the Earthbeat album. But、right. I. I basically produced them, you know, recorded them on my own, and then Dick O'Dell came in when we were mixing. Okay, and, and that、so、was it. I, yeah, that that was, and it was very quick. And, and it also, it wasn't at the townhouse. We recorded at some other studio because the townhouse wasn't available, and then it was mixed at the townhouse. Right.、Um, but I remember it, it was great, really great fun. I mean, I, I, I. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Another person you've worked a lot with is Nick Cave. Yeah. When when did you work with him? <laughs> was this in I, Berlin? No, it was way before. I, I was probably in the Banshees, and there's a lady by the name of Annie Hogan. Okay. A pianist, keyboard、yeah. player, and she she'd written all these songs, and she had a song called Vixo, and we were at North End Studios. I think it was T W Studios. It was a real no, no, no name studio, and I got the call to go over there with Annie, and Nick was there. It was really late. There was no drum kit. There was a tambourine. There was a snare drum. There was a crappy old ride cymbal. I was playing some harmonica. Nick was playing some harmonica. I think. And、uh, Annie was doing the piano, and we just cut this track, and、uh, and I loved it. And he had only had a cassette version of it for about twenty years, maybe longer. What era was this? Like, was this Se- like? It's got to be eighty tops, seventy. Yeah, well, that because the first time they came to London was nineteen yeah, end of eighty. Because I did、uh, this song called "Release the Bats." Yes, yeah, in that same right, studio, right. And so that that was when it must have been. So that was literally when I. You were in the. You were in the other room. You'd gone、no. home. That was in the other room. <laughs> I saw the, the birthday party played at the Covent Garden Rock Garden. Right. Yes. And I was at that gig. There was not a lot of people there. I, I, I didn't. I didn't go to that gig.、Um, I could pretend I went to that gig, and so that you know, I could be in. The, I was all there somewhere. You know. Yes, we were all there. We were all there, clearly. And I was drinking. I was drinking for us all. And I, when they finished, I steamed off. I, fa- I found the dressing room, and I went in and I said, "You guys are fucking great." You're rah rah rah. rah. And I go, "Who's this nut to get him out of here?"、Yeah, I remember that. That was about the same time as I would go to the、yeah. marquee, and somebody I would、yeah. walk in the marquee, and somebody would go to me, "Oh, no, no, Robert's here. He's up by the bar." And I go, "Really?" Because I I know that I just left him back in the studio. You know, the other side of town. And I'd walk up to the bar, and there'd be somebody who looked a little bit like Robert. Yes, because he had the same hair. Yeah, and so I just I get my drink, and I just stand next to them, and watch them freak out when they realised, you know, that like oh, this this guy's nose. There was the, the the nights that you know queuing up outside the Bat Cave, you know, to to get in, and I because I never like going to the front of the queue because you could. Yeah, right. You know, Do you know who I am? <laughs> yeah, and I, me and Susie were there one night, and like like five people in front. There's me and Susie stood there, looked like, like we're already going in. <laughs> <laughs> there was like identical from from the back, you know, blonde hair, black hair. Yeah, pretend he was Bob. 
going to places and pretend he was Robert. Yeah. You know, he'd get away with it all the time as well. I used to pretend I was me, you know. Yeah. Well, I had, a, I had many years of pretending I was me. It took a long time to find the real me. <laughs> what an amazing time yeah. that was. I mean, you, t- you two, in, especially because you were in bands making great music and you know, p- part of that whole thing. <sighs> You, you, you're kind of like heads down. You really, you're not. I always remember that quote saying, "Be careful not to read rubbish because you might yeah. end up writing it." It was somebody yeah. writing for the Guardian, right. a real serious writer. Um, but th- there was a lot of that where you kind of blinkered out. You know, Visage were happening over here, and John right. McGeeot was playing guitar with us and doing, you know, yeah. moonlighting with Steve Strange. You know, we saying. Steve can't have a band. Right. You know, Steve was one of the first guys I met when I went to London. He showed me how to shoplift on the King's Road. You know, don't shoplift there. Go to Boy. They're much, like, better quality. Wow. You know, Dago. <laughs> um, so Visage, were, like, made some money very quickly. They had motorcycles. They were yeah, endorsed yeah. by Yamaha. The guitar. Well, that yeah. one song. I thought that one yeah. song. I mean, Fade to Grey, I thought. Yeah. I, I'd love that yeah. song to this. It, it yeah. stands up very well. It sounds great yep, today. Agreeing, yeah. It's always sounded great. I, I don't know how that came together, but it's and you know that club. You, you, so you must have gone to the Blitz, the Blitz Club. Debauched. It was all debauched. Yeah, right. I don't know how they let Spandau <laughs> yeah. Ballet in. You know, the dress code was like really lax, lax. <laughs> and they let that David Bowie chap they in. They did. It must have been amazing, though. It was a amazing. lot of stuff happening. Um, being a, a young guy from like northwest England, sort yeah. of landing in the centre of it, you know, really in the eye of the of the movers and shakers. I mean, I'd been to London to watch yeah. Suicide opening for the Clash. Wow! You know, and I, and I was so drunk, I, I saw like <laughs> there was eight people in Suicide. You know, <laughs> well, they're a big band, <sighs> and they all look the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just remembering something. So at the townhouse, it would have been just after I did Flowers of Romance, I had a meeting with The Cure, with you. Okay. Well, there was four of you. Yeah. And, oh, God, it was really... Terrible. No, no, it was great. You released the singles, right? You had There was a couple of singles that ended up being an album. Oh, yeah, 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 for Japanese Whispers. Right, and I I remember buying those... And I knew, obviously, the cure. And then it was this meeting. Right. And I remember it being sort of great and sort of awkward because I think Robert was very shy. Uh, 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 kind of, and we talked. And then my memory of it was it was a meeting for me to perhaps work with the cure. Oh, okay. And then, then it didn't happen because I had done the public image records. Oh. Now, whether it was because someone didn't like that or didn't like John or yeah. there was something. Well, that's funny because it, it wouldn't have been. I remember going to the townhouse and having some meeting and I apologize if I don't remember that it was, you know, I, I, I believe you when you say it was you. Um, I, it wouldn't have been either me or Robert that didn't like public image because we both loved them, you know? Oh, no, yeah. That was just probably my my thoughts. I probably thought oh. maybe, maybe maybe it was that way. It was the manager because at that time, if there was like four of us, 
that um, I don't know. Maybe that was like seventeen seconds. Maybe yeah. Bit, no, maybe it was after or something. It was just after. But that. I remember around that time we 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 all we had hedges. We worked with hedges for the first three albums, and then we went to see. We had quite a lot of different people come in and talk to us, and and Connie Plank. We, we had a meeting with Connie Plank. He'd just done. Um, Killing Joke, and he he, yeah. he impressed us a lot because he was like this big brooding German guy dressed all in right. leather, and he came and sat next to us in the in the office, and he went, "I've just finished the record with uh, Killing Joke. You know the sound? It's like an animal. It's animal. Yeah. So we were like, oh yeah, we like him. And then he died, so that we could <laughs> have him. So we end up working with uh, Phil Thornley, who was twenty one when when he did pornography. You know, it was like ridiculously young yeah but, yeah you know, I, it's a bit it's all it's all very what's what, what i'm what i'm realizing is that we 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 in the bands were a little older than the fans you know we were yeah. we, punk rock if you like it was it was happening for 14 year olds we were mm. already like 20 in our 20s and we'd been we'd grown up on like 70s rock right or 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 german experimental music or there was a lot of reggae in my background. There was a lot of reggae came in from Jamaica around late 69, you know, and it, um, plus the Stones and the Beatles, all that stuff as well. So we kind of came, what Punk did was give us the, the impetus and the, and the facility to do something. Yeah, yeah. To do, but we, we brought a lot of stuff. We almost started as post-punk. You know, we, we, we quickly jumped into the world of ideas rather than the, Ramones yeah. cliche, you know, of, even though the Ramones were the star, the star attraction. Yeah, like the the label post punk is now such a thing. Yeah, that I mean, I I get asked to work with so many bands now because post punk is, you know, this popular thing, um, and and they've it's become a a name that people relate to that whole era, and in a way, I think well, the Cure and and Susie and the Banshees were were the main band. I apologise yeah. that we didn't work with you back then. If I'd known what I know now, I would have said yes. I, I, apo- I yes, yes. It's a damn shame. Yes. It's a damn shame. Never, <laughs> never say never, lol. Never say never. Never say never. Yeah. I, I, I was so. I mean, I was barely twenty, and it was all just very bizarre to me because you know, I like I said, I grew up in Spain, right? So I didn't. It was suddenly I was still living at home with my mum and. To, to, to suddenly be working with Johnny Rotten yeah. was Great. crazy enough. Great. And then all this other stuff, you know, it was, uh, it was, it's insane. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kay. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 
2022.